book of Genesis. Uh, what happened in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis? Anyone? What's what's chapter one and two about? Creation. Yeah, two two creation stories. Uh, chapter three is about what? It's about the fall, right? It's about Eve's temptation by the by the the, the serpent, right? Um, her eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam's as well. And so, therefore, humanity is now fallen. Uh, there are consequences not only to the serpent, but also to Adam and to Eve and to the earth. Okay, chapter four. Cain and Abel. And so last time we discussed Cain and Abel, we also spent a little bit of time discussing how the fall has messed up our passions and how the God gives us this, his own spirit to fix our passions. Right? The fruit of the spirit is specifically juxtaposed, if you read Galatians chapter 5, uh, with things that are clearly, all right, very, very clearly um, sins of a messed up, of a depraved spirit, of a depraved soul, depraved passions. And so in, in the Cain and Abel story, it was uh, passionate anger ultimately leading to murder. And then uh, chapter 5, anybody? Right, so generations to Noah. And so you've got here uh, a number of generations and I don't think we really talked about anyone in speci- really specifically out of this. And I want to start here. And my goal today is to get us through chapter 11, though we will be jumping to the New Testament to help us explain something in chapter 6. In chapter 5, there's two things I want to note. Uh, note. Uh, one is a question, and one is something that will be actually quite relevant to the New Testament discussion that we have in a second. So you've got a number of generations, and the point of the the genealogy here is to go essentially from Adam to Noah, because Noah, the Noahic story, the Noahic covenant, the flood, is the next big story in Genesis. And so you've got a genealogy stuck in here to basically get us from point A to point B, point B being the Noah story, which is starts in chapter 6. Two things out of this chapter, chapter 5, that I think is worth mentioning. One is, let's start reading in chapter 5, verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And the general idea here would be that God took Enoch. All right? At some point during his life, Enoch was physically taken into heaven. That's one point. I want to point out, which will be relevant in a minute. Uh, then, just a little bit later, which is just a question, I think, is it would, and I think an interesting question, and I think there's an interesting answer to it, but I'll let you decide. If you go to verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that 
the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What is that referring to? Noah plants a vineyard. All right, what's who? Who cares? Grapes. Right. Right. Is this what he's referring to? I think so. That's the best explanation I've seen. And so, at this point, you have, as Edward mentioned, let's just go ahead and turn there. Go to uh, Genesis chapter nine. Genesis chapter 9, uh, verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay covered in his tent. And that's a story we'll get to in a minute. And so uh, the best explanation I've seen of that is, what does it mean to relieve man from his toil? And it's a theme in the Old Testament that you do see sometimes. What's the purpose of wine? It's to help ease people after the hard labor that they have to go through because essentially of the curse against the soil. And so it's an interesting point there, I think. Now, all of that, really chapter 5, though, is, is really just to set us up for chapter 6. In chapter 6, the beginning of it is uh, a, a little bit unusual in terms of, of themes. Uh, but for some of us, we, we covered this, I don't know, probably about a year ago, whenever we were discussing. So for some of you, this discussion will not be new at all. For some of you, it might be. And so let's go read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." So you've got at the at the end of chapter five clearly a transition into Noah. Then you've got a well. Let's not talk about that for a second. Let's talk about essentially setting the scene. Why does there need to be a flood? Why does there need to be a great destruction? And the cause of the great destruction is ultimately verses one through five six. All right, an increasing wickedness on the earth. All right, or in the land. Naturally, we're going to ask, what is this wickedness? All right. Uh, when you've got here that when man, back in verse one, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Okay. Well, this is man just procreating. This is not actually a bad thing. This is quite required, right? If man is going to fill the earth and subdue it. Verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. All right? And 
whatever this is, all right, prompts a response from God. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Then you've got this statement. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And of course, the question is, who are the sons of God? In verse 2, um, who could this be? You've, you've only really got two possibilities. Either these are humans or these are not. Angel- these are some sort of angelic being. Now, this is not a wide array of evidence from the Old Testament, but the phrase, the sons of God, when we're talking about plural, all right, occurs, I believe, three times in Job, and, and all three are clearly angelic beings. The the phrase, as far as I know, occurs nowhere else. Here, it doesn't mean necessarily that it has to be that, because, frankly, just three occurrences in Job is not a lot to base word study. However, um, internally, argument-wise, that men got with women and that they had children is not a problem. And so it doesn't, if that's really the problem here, that doesn't set up a need in and of itself for any sort of destruction. Fortunately, we are helped out by the New Testament because the New Testament, the way it talks about this passage very clearly teaches that this is not actually humans cohabitating with women, but these are fallen angels cohabitating with women and human women. And out of that come offspring that need to be destroyed. That is a New Testament thing. Uh, It, I think you could argue that without the New Testament. But the New Testament makes that clear. And because it's, uh, A, very interesting, and B, something easy to confuse people, I do want to go through the argument in the New Testament and then comment on this here. All right? Let's start with the book of Jude. So uh, put a bookmark here in Genesis because we will be coming back to it. things we'll want to take a look at are Jude and 2 Peter. Jude and 2 Peter overlap a great deal. And both of them um, have some things here that will help us. I think uh, the argument in 2 Peter makes it a little bit more clearly, but I want to start with Jude, because he does something uh, that's, that's interesting and relevant. Alright, book of Jude. It's a short book. Uh, the only things that really... Uh, concern us or the first half of the short book. So we'll read verses 3 all the way through 16. All right? And I want you to think uh, in this passage, and we'll do the same in Second Peter, what is the nature of the sin being discussed here? What is the problem? All right? Jude, starting in verse 3. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." 
stopping for a moment. One, note this statement here, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. All right, so he's going to point to something. It's not clear how long ago that is yet. All right, he's going to point to something, and he's specifically going to point to Genesis chapter 6. All right, especially when we compare this to Second Peter. Okay, and also, what are these people doing? These people who are uh, condemned in this way are are creeping into the church, all right? are infiltrating uh, the people that, that, that God has, and they are trying to do some bad things. Well, well, what are they? All right, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And so here we have, remarkably, Jude saying, who led, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt? Well, that was Jesus himself who did that. And two, ultimately, he was the one who destroyed in the wilderness the, the wicked within Israel. Going on. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I'm about to make the argument that this is a reference to Genesis chapter 6 right here. Uh, But we'll get there. But whatever you have here is you have essentially a group of angels, all right, a group of angels who left their proper dwelling. What's the proper dwelling of angels? The heavens, not the earth. All right. Uh, who's supposed to subdue the earth? Not the angels. We are. All right. They left their uh, proper dwelling. They they left their own position of authority, and uh, as a judgment, they are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you've actually got two stories here from Genesis. All right? You've got the angelic fall, if that is in fact Genesis 6, and it is. And you've got Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Continuing. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain, and have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Going back to the theme from just a few verses ago. All right. Now, I wanted to keep reading specifically for this, because this puts us thematically in a general area of thought that's, that's relevant. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, we were just reading about Enoch in chapter 5, 
prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So the general description description of the 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 problematic people here, all right, is various things, right? They are false teachers, all right? They are uh, ungodly, they do not control their passions, they are there to corrupt humanity. All right? In this case, they're here to corrupt the church. So that's the general theme and the general look of things. Now, the Enoch passage, right? We know, if you read Genesis chapter 5, you will not see Enoch saying anything like this in chapter 5. Nor do we have in the Old Testament anything where Enoch says anything like this. We actually never hear from Enoch again within the context of the Old Testament. What is he talking about? Well, there were some traditions that were accepted within parts of Judaism. Traditions that were said to have come from Enoch. Maybe they were, maybe they not. A lot of people would look at this and go, yes, they were, because here it says it actually did come from Enoch. And it's not another Enoch. It's not some random Enoch, because a lot of names are reused. It's specifically the one that we talked about, because it names, names essentially his generation from Adam. And so for Jude, all right, he accepts these traditions, all right, he accepts these traditions, and sees what you see in First Enoch, uh, well, what you see at least in the Enoch traditions, um, he sees in them a sign of what's happening within the church. False teachers coming in, trying to corrupt. And not only trying to corrupt from a mental knowledge standpoint, but trying to corrupt from a, um, a passionate, sensual standpoint. All right? They're not just trying to make people think wrong things. All right? Because with one sin comes other sins. And the sin for these is not just knowledge, bad knowledge, or falsehood. The sins for these is also corrupting of the flesh and of the sensuality. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned that on accident. I tried to move on. Um, and so uh, it, I was about to get to it, but we'll, and now's a good time. Uh, there is a there is a book. All right, you can find the book. You can get English translations of it. It's called First Enoch. It is for a very by a very small part of the Christian Church. Uh, considered canonical. We do not think it is so. Um, But it has been historically taken as canonical by a small group of people, mostly really just because of this passage. It's a complex book in that it, it, it has a number of pieces to it. A lot of people tend to look at it as a conglomeration of different traditions, right? Not just one. In First Enoch, which is why it's extremely relevant here, and why this passage here about Enoch is very relevant, is part of First Enoch does comment quite explicitly on Genesis chapter 6. And what does it do? It actually talks about how those corruptors were angelic beings. And what it does that expands on Genesis chapter 6, it is, is it not just what you have in Genesis chapter 6 where they are sensually corrupted, but there's a big part in First Enoch to where they come and they are specifically bringing all sorts of false teaching, alchemy in a bad sense, things like that. And so this is First Enoch. We do not consider it canonical. Um, it is an, a very interesting question. 
how exactly do you take this statement by Jude here? Because he's pointing to a first, he is pointing to an Enoch, all right? Yet, this passage is not within the Old Testament at all, this thing that he quotes here. Uh, but you do find it actually in First Enoch. And so, we don't take it as canonical. Uh, Jude at least took this story, this, this part, as true. Now, based on all that, we do not yet have a specific, uh, I don't think a, an ironclad argument that Genesis chapter 6 is actually talking about fallen angels. To get to that, let's go to Second Peter. And I think here the logic could really only lead you to that. You will see a lot of overlap in Second Peter to Jude. If we look at 2 Peter 2, uh, just a few glances at a few things, all right? You've got in verse 1, but the false prophets also arose among the people. So there's this very similar theme here in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality. So it's false prophets. It's false prophets not only corrupting in the mind, but also corrupting in the body. And we'll skip the next paragraph and come back to it in a second. You've got in verse uh, 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme glorious ones. Also something talked about in Jude. Uh, you've gotten, for example, in chapter 15, uh, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, which Jude also mentioned. Verse 17, they are waterless springs and mist and driven by a storm. Similar ideas that you've got in Jude. Um, Verse 21, for it is better for them to have never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Why? Because there's going to be a great deal of judgment on them. And so there's a there's strong thematic overlap here with, with Jude. Now let's go back and focus on verses 4 through 10, where we will see, I think, very clearly that Peter is talking about Genesis chapter 6. So let's think through the internal logic. For if God, all right, and this is talking about false teachers, all right, false teachers and uh, who teach bad things and bring in sensuality that ought not to be. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, semicolon, all right, so this is something specifically mentioned by Jude. All right, and so what we're going to do is we're going to need to, in, in the argument, place this temporarily. When did this happen? Some people read this and think this is a pre, uh, like a pre-creation fall. All right, I think that is certainly wrong. Um, we have no reason to think that, and there's another event that fits this very well, which is Genesis chapter six. Well, we'll get. Well, let's build that argument. Alright, so clearly we have an angelic fall of some sort. All right? These are angels, and God did not spare them. Now, if you recall back to our discussion of words for the underworld, which we went through like a year ago or so, uh, cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Um, specifically, this is the word, cast them into Tartarus. And Tartarus, of course, this, is, this was written in Greek, Tartarus in Greek mythology is a place where various rebellic angelic type beings, though they wouldn't call them angels, uh, demigods, gods of some sort, were cast 
into a place of prison. All right? And so Peter is using this same idea, using these same words to talk about this. This is not, when we traditionally think of the word hell, this is not the same thing. And so therefore, ESV, which I'm reading, this is not a very useful translation. It, it is a specific spot. All right? It is a specific spot that specific beings were cast into and put into prison. That's verse 4. Yes, yes, and you would say that partially because you know it talks to them about chains of gloomy darkness to kept until the judgment, and so the judgment would actually the full judgment would be at a later time. So yes, it is not a place of punishment. It is a place, though. I mean, you should actually see it as a place of punishment. It is a, but it is not a place of final judgment. It is a pla- a keeping place until the final judgment shall happen. All right. Next part. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay? Next story. You've got, what is it? You've got Noah. All right? This is our subject matter. In Genesis, all right, you've got whatever this angelic fall, at least in this narrative, happens right before, all right, the flood that comes upon Noah. That will be very important to our argument. All right, so you've got the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So you've got essentially sinful corruption, Noah. All right, this is the argument he's building. Now, switch. Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Wicked corruption. Alright. 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed from the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Righteous Lot. So you've got wickedness, Noah. Wickedness, Lot. And what's the argument he's trying to make? It's the next verse. Then, all right, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Okay? Sin that prompts a judgment, and God is able to save the righteous in the judgment. Sin that prompts a judgment, and God is able to save the, the righteous through that judgment. Therefore, in the midst of your current issue you're having with false prophets, God is able to rescue the righteous in the midst of judgment. That's the argument of the paragraph. It's fairly straightforward. Sinful stuff judgment but but preserve Noah sinful stuff judgment but preserve Lot God can preserve you too that's the argument now this I think is an ironclad argument as far as I'm concerned to why this has to be talking about Genesis chapter 6 why because whatever sinful thing that happened here has to be something that prompted the Noahic flood and from the Genesis perspective what is the thing that prompted the flood of Noah during Noah's time. It was the corruption that happened in chapter 6. And here, and in Jude, what is the thing that, that, that causes that? It is 
angels despising authority, coming down and corrupting humanity. All right? And so from a Jude perspective, it's strongly implied. It makes sense out of Jude's argument that this would be the case. From a Second Peter perspective, the only way his argument even makes any sense is if he's really tying Genesis chapter 6 um, and whatever the sons of God cohabitating with women there, he's, he's tying them specific, that to an angelic fall. Okay, Which means when we tend to think of, and this is more of a later Western idea, that there was a big fall before creation happened, and that's when the big fall of the angelic beings happened, you don't see that in the Old Testament. You don't see that in the New Testament either. It's not a fall. It's multiple falls. It's you've got clearly the serpent... All right, being uh, sinning and being punished in Genesis chapter three, and then you've got a later, all right, a later group of angelic beings in Genesis chapter six being corrupted, all right, corrupting themselves and therefore trying to corrupt the earth. And um, from a, even though once again we don't consider it canonical, from a first Enoch perspective. Um, what did the angels, these fallen angels do? Well, it's an interesting story. If you go look, First Enoch 6 and 7, you can find it online if you want to. Essentially what a group of angels said is they made a pact and they're like, we want to go down and we want to marry and cohabitate with these human women. Let's all make a pact that when one of us does it, we'll all do it. And so they said, yeah, we're going to do it. And so they all went down and they did this. And then what did they do? Was well, a part of that was not only the corrupting of, of human angelic offspring, but also you've got like a whole chapter of, well, what are the false and negative things that the, the false teachings essentially the, the angels taught the humans at that point in time? And so you've very much got this theme that Second Peter and Jude are clearly working off of, um, which explains why, all right? Uh, which explains why, in Jude and Second Peter, why they would even go to Genesis chapter 6 to prove their point. Because if their concern in Second Peter and Jude is false teachers, all right? If you, read, if you just read Genesis chapter 6, there's nothing about false teachers there. It's just the corrupting influence of these angels. Then where does the false teachers element comes from? It comes from different Jewish traditions. It comes from the Enoch Traditions, essentially, that get referenced here. So, that's essentially a review of something we went over like about a year ago. There's a lot to it, so I thought it was worth repeating again. Uh, any questions about any of those things? You might see any holes in that argument on Second Peter. I'll just say, any implication that demons, angels, somehow procreated with people, I really I just don't see how that's consistent. You see pieces you're pulling together, but as a real event, I don't really see it happening. I mean, you know, um, I guess uh, even the seven brothers and one wife story, you know, Mm -hmm. angels in heaven, there's no family, there's no creation, there's nothing. So true. So, as a general thing, you see, humans are humans. There's no mixed breed, and there never was. That's that's the only clear picture I can see. Although when you put pieces together, kind of imply that. I kind of separate this despising authority versus passions mm-hmm. issue, and then really 
humans, the statement earlier, even in Genesis, that humans are just sinful, right? Mm -hmm. There could be compounding sinfulness from demonic influences that make it even worse, but the false teacher part of it, Jude, apostasy, false teachers, all that, you know, it's consistent, but to extend it and really think that there was a, some people that are half people and half demons, mm -hmm. really, only, only, only one time where there was any human and the Holy Spirit, you know, Jesus kind of third, mm -hmm. that's real. Anything else, I just, um, I don't have a hard time ever thinking that's real. Sure, and I, I will totally agree with you in that it is an extremely strange notion. I'm, I'm actually with you on that. Um, if we think about you know, any sort of our current experiences, anything that we've heard of in modern times, we'd look at this and go, that doesn't sound right at all. So I'm actually totally with you on that. It is extremely strange. Um, in terms of your, 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 what you said, all right, were angels meant to be able to take human form to cohabitate with women? No, I don't think so. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right on that notion. Uh, Im angels were never meant to be, to have that kind of relationship with humans. That's very much clear, not only from what you posted, you know, what you said about the, the New Testament and Jesus' statements there. Uh, they would be like the angels of the heavens. That they, they would not, they don't have cohabitation in that sense. Totally, completely agree with that notion. Here, the idea would have to be, all right, and this, and the only reason, or really the main reason here is, I think Jude and Peter's argument requires it, especially Peter's argument, less, less so Jude's, is that what would have to happen, that would have to mean that whatever these angelic beings were, were more than just messengers. They had to have the ability to change themselves into a physical form, all right? They would have to have that, right? Now, in a sense, we know that angels have to be able to take some sort of physicality from the Old Testament stories themselves, because sometimes the angels do, in fact, kill people, all right? That means they're not, they may be purely spiritual beings, but they can ultimately be physical. And you've also got the angel of the Lord, all right, which we would also say is Jesus, Ultimately, taking some sort form of physical form, for example, to wrestle with Jacob and other things. And so they can take physical forms. What that would mean, then, is they can do that. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they could take the physical form in such a way that they could procreate with humans. That's another step, and I totally agree. And the main reason I would take that step is I think Second Peter, despite all the weirdness, is making essentially that argument. Um, and that's really the main reason why I go there. Now, um, I'll get to both of you here in a second. Now, if you're not going to go that direction, there, it's fairly common to um, basically take the argument in Genesis chapter 6 as essentially the Sethite line cohabitating with the people of Cain. All right? And so you've got Cain and his people cursed, and then... Seth, which would be the third son of Adam and Eve, and his line, this is what was not supposed to happen, and then therefore that would be the cursed thing. All right? um, that is a fairly common, I think, interpretation. I've read that as common. I've never in my life met somebody who said that. Uh, but in books, it is a common interpretation. Uh, but I don't think so, based on Second Peter. But it is, I totally grant you, strange and hard to believe. 
100% with you. Uh, yes, Jonathan, I think you raised your hand next. Um, two things. Do we know anything about the original form of the angels? You were talking about how apparently they have some form of ability to change to a physical form to kill somebody or apparently sleep with them. Um, sleep with somebody and have mm-hmm. kids and get married. What would be... Does the Bible talk about any form other than maybe some of the ones in Revelation or the physical form? Sometimes, right? You've got, um, for example, when Isaiah has a vision of God in the throne room, you've got a description of how many wings they have, for example, and what they're doing. So you, you do get that sometimes. There's not a whole lot of discussion on it, though. Right? It's, it's not a major topic because the, the Bible is mostly concerned with, with people and their relationship to God. It is less concerned with angels, though angels play a, por- a very important part in certain things. But there's not a whole lot of um, discussion on their angelic attributes. Yeah. Yeah, I have one more question. Yeah. Where, where do you think the giants like Goliath came from, or the so called superhuman giant people that are briefly talked about in the Bible and mm-hmm. have been? In fairy tales and myths, we mm-hmm. don't necessarily know if they're true or were real. I, I think but could they have yeah. come from Cain and Seth, or it would make more sense just to me that they come from more powerful beings like angels. But most of them were killed off in the flood because if the angel story turns out to be real mm-hmm. and it was a corruption, God would kill them off in the flood. Right. So I think Goliath is just a very tall dude. Uh, I think that's essentially he was just a very bulky lad and intimidating fellow. I, th- I think so. Um, if, if what I'm saying is true, if, and you decide for your own self, if what I'm saying is true, and the point of the flood was to wipe out this group, all right, then um, Goliath couldn't have been one of them because they would all have been wiped out, wiped out as part of the flood. And they were at that point imprisoned in darkness until the final day of judgment. Or at least that might be the angels and not their offspring. And so I tend, I tend to think just Goliath was just a very tall Philistine. And nothing more than that. I guess just to add on to what you said, yeah. the, um, I think there weren't really great people ever, right? So the fact that there's really bad people that were kind of half human or something, and then good people, they all got wiped out because they were all bad. So yeah. in that sense, it's not like you had to wipe them out because they were really bad. They're, yeah, they're all really bad. It's not like yeah. the person they could have been without the demon influence. They were just worthy of that, right? They all are really. Yeah, uh, I agree. And the way the Genesis 6 story is, it's the flood wasn't clearly, was not just to wipe the offspring of this union out. It was, what's the point? All of mankind was corrupt. Except, except Noah. All of mankind was corrupt. And so, yeah. Yeah. It seems like whatever it was that happened, mm-hmm. Peter describes it as angels that sinned, mm-hmm. my translation, and Jude described it as angels which kept not their first estate, but left to their own habitation. So it's like 
I would think your first estate is here's what you're supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. and you basically get off the reservation. Yeah. And then you you um, you leave that and go do something that's not what you're supposed to be doing at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like uh, unnatural. It is. Yeah. And. What I think Peter is saying is these two events are the same events and that these are angels leaving their proper domain to corrupt humanity for their own desires because they were sinful. In, in the story of Lot, the angels come to tell him to leave. Mm -hmm. And the, it's a very strange passage. It is. Lot's like... The, the people want to have sex with the angels, right? Bring them out that we may have sex with them. It's very odd to me, right? These are angels. Mm -hmm. They appear to be humans. And Lot says, don't do that. Here, take my daughter, which I don't understand at all. But could they actually have had sex with the angels? Maybe not. Seems like, I don't know, but to the townspeople, mm -hmm. they looked like humans. They mm -hmm. were interested in them, you know. Mm -hmm. Strange. I mean, who knows if they could? I, I tend to think that they could have b because of the parallels. But they didn't, as it turns out. It's true. Also true. Also true. Yes, Chip. After the flood of the ground can Continue to be cursed, or was it cleansed? No, I think it continued to be cursed. Yeah, and you definitely get that notion all the way up until un, until the New Testament, because Paul looks forward as the redemption of creation as a future thing. Create, creation is ultimately waiting for the full revelation of the children of God, for it to, to be released from its own corruption. So, no, I don't. I don't think the the, the judgment of, of, of the time of Noah was to wipe out the sin, sinful humanity. And I think based on Second Peter, also wipe out the offspring of the fallen angels. What's that? Wine grapes came from the ground. The wine was used to make wine. That's true. I'm not sure why it's relevant. You also have the passage where it talks about entertaining angels unaware. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a good thing in that. Like, you know, be hospitable, be kind. You never know. A person might be an angel you're helping. And it's like a test or something. But could evil angels do the same thing in a bad way people don't realize that it's an angel or evil that, that's, that's my argument I think that it's definitely true I'm yeah. not charismatic or anything but I know someone incredibly close to me that I would trust anything they said who believes that they have seen an angel What's the other half? Are these, if this were happening, which I don't believe, there are the demons that, you know, procreated somehow. Did they all, are they all in chains now? 
Or mm-hmm. why aren't they making more right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the... Yeah. I think there are demons, but I don't think they're... Yeah. Uh, the, the idea would be... Uh, here's one thing I think that... One notion, regardless of this particular thing, that I think we need to purge from our brains is that the fall of all... You know, all of the angelic hosts that fell, all of that happened like when Satan fell, right? When the serpent fell in Genesis chapter 3, right? Unbiblical idea, period. I've no, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the idea, but this is not something that the Bible actually teaches, all right? If you look in Revelation at the fall of the angels there, that's also not given as something that happens before time. So um, we can go ahead and say, all right, that thing doesn't, this is a kind of a notion that came up in Western literature that just doesn't have any basis in the text. It's, it's an interesting notion, but not there. That's the one thing to note. What's that? John Milton. John Milton. Now, if that's the case, all right, it actually, it's, it's honestly not a strange notion at all that if there are angelic beings and that they do have the ability to fall, which they clearly do, that they would fall, not necessarily at the same time. All right, You've got the serpent falling in Genesis chapter 3. You've got, I would argue, angelic fall in um, Genesis chapter 6. You've got other statements, like, for example, Isaiah, when it talks about Tyre, and Ezekiel talks about Babylon, or maybe that's reversed. Uh, you, you, get, you basically hear about an angelic fall in those places too. All right? There's no notion, biblically speaking, that says the fall for all wicked, angelic, demonic creatures happened at the same time. Now, if they didn't all happen at the same time, all right, and they all did different things, then God also, it stands to reason, might treat them differently. Right? Um, Whatever is going on in Second Peter, which I think is Genesis chapter six, and you don't, whatever is going on in Second Peter, those angels were put in a prison to await judgment. So whatever those angelic beings are, are not, for example, the demons you see in the New Testament. Right? How do we know? They're put in prison. Pretty clear. And so there is an angelic world out there, and it can fall. Creatures in that angelic world could fall. Some of them, in theory, could fall even now. There's nothing that says anywhere that that can't happen. Because there's implications that it does happen progressively over time in the Bible. They could, that could all continue to happen even now as more are corrupted and fall. All right? And God could, of course, treat them all Differently, because God, just as God treats human sinners differently. Peter? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, um, if you've ever talked to someone who's big into this head coverings for women, then they'll look at Paul's statement and say the most, where he says, you know, the King James is, a woman should have power on her head, comma, because of the angels, period. Um, and the, what I've heard, what their, their interpretation of that is, is, I don't want my wife to be a temptation to angels, and this covering on her head is a symbol that she's a married woman. As if, so the angel's going to leave her alone. I, 
I have a hard time with the whole concept, but that's what they that's mm-hmm. the way they read it. Huh. It's an interesting notion. Um, well, the, and I agree, women are beautiful. <laughs> I think I think that is that is interesting because in my mind, like the angels and demons groups are set at this point. But I'm saying that that's not that's just the way I thought right. of it. The, the teams are set, and now it's, there's a battle. But why? Why couldn't one yeah. fall today? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about it some more. All right. I mean, the only place where there's a... Well, two places, because of what I believe about Genesis 6. The only other place where you have that I can think of a mass falling of angels is in Revelation. But it doesn't have anything definitive in terms of, you know, nothing else like this can happen, happen or even happen before. Yeah. Is there a way for angels to repent and be restored? Biblically, I see nothing that says that they can or that they can't. However, all right, uh, from a theological perspective, why can we repent and believe and be restored? Because Jesus shed his blood for us. All right, there's nothing theologically that would make me argue or make me think that he shed his blood for angelic beings. That's not a part of the discussion anywhere. And so uh, my general assumption would be no. If if an angel I heard me a follower, one that fell and I said, Oh, I'm on the wrong side. What can I do? Yeah. I, I see nothing that would mean that that could be the yeah. be the case. On that, what you just mentioned, I don't know where I got this general idea, but the idea that angels are already kind of up there with God mm-hmm. and with his glory and Whoa, we're way over time. Seen it before, where we have it, where we would turn into dust or explode or something if we did. And they've gotten more of a witness to the grandness of heaven and the spiritual realm. So they've gotten their vision of it. And if they still decide to go back, they don't. Mm-hmm. It's not like they would. It seems to me they wouldn't deserve a second chance. What else could they see that they haven't already seen? Exactly. Really. And greater judgment against those who know more. I apologize. I totally lost track of time. It was a great discussion. Um, yes, totally weird. I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, but that's one thing about this church is we can disagree and still be brothers and sisters. And that's okay. So sorry about losing time. If anybody wants to talk about it more, totally open during lunch today. So come chat with me about that. Um, so let's, let's, be, let's be dismissed real quick. Uh, Frank, will you please pray for us?